and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite A-lister food writers. This week I'm with Urvashi Rowe, whose journey from Gujarat through London's estates to Bake Off and her first book, Biting Biting, which celebrates the snacking culture of her Gujarati family, is a fascinating story of modern Britain. How much more fun is it to experiment and get creative, right? And that's where I think the internationalness of the way we eat comes in now. So if I make butter shak today, then tomorrow's breakfast is hands down going to be a thick slice of buttered sourdough with butter shak on top, bunga poached egg on it, chilli and coriander chutney over the top, sprinkle of, of toasted sunflower seeds boom i began by asking her to take me back to the moment when she applied to series two of that great british bake-off so that all started with my uh, 40th birthday so i kind of um was a little bit drunk with my husband and i was like oh i'm not going to turn into this middle-aged person that doesn't do anything so let's make a list of 40 new things that i'm going to do and we stuck on there you know TV show, um, just as a bit of a joke and a bit of a malarkey. And so the next couple of days, I was kind of just on Instagram. I think it was, it might have been Twitter or something, and just looking um, at, at, you know, idly doom scrolling. And I saw this <laughs> note come up on Paul Hollywood's website around, um, you know, people wanted to enter this competition. And I thought, oh, okay, that's TV. I'll do that. Filled it in. Um, filled in the form, took about an hour to fill in the form. Like literally, I think I was like still drinking wine or something at that point, filled it in. And then the following day, I got a call back from the production company and they're like, oh, we've got your form. And I'm like, oh my God, it's a real thing. You're calling me back. Um, so I spent about two hours on the phone with the production company going through my application form and they were just asking me all these questions. They were so nice. And um, they said, oh, it's just been really good to chat with you. Would you like to come along on Wednesday? And I was like, what? Huh? Wednesday? That's like the day after tomorrow. Um, okay, yeah, I can do that. So off I went with one sweet thing and one savoury thing. And stupid me decided to bake bread rolls for my savoury thing. And I baked a pavlova for my sweet thing. And I didn't expect Mary and Paul to be there. And then I kind of turned up into this hall um, that they'd hired with my bakes and Paul and Mary were there and Paul kind of ripped into the bread and he opened up like I made this chili focaccia and he opened it up and he was like do you know what that is and I said um it's chili focaccia that's brilliant that is that's really tasty and I was like okay thank you thanks very much and then and then Mary very kind of tasted the pavlova and she said oh aren't you a clever girl that's ever so delicious and I was like thanks this is so cool i mean had people said to you before that that you were a good baker could you i mean had you had lots of feedback on your cooking just my friends like i every time we have friends over um i bake every time we've got i mean we do like boxing day christmas parties um it's always friends at our house on boxing day so i always used to bake loads of different things and people would say oh you're really good you're really good but nobody like you know you should enter a competition that's just so not me i'm a real introvert and to kind of like go on tv um i think because for me it just happened very very quickly there were other contestants on bake-off series two that you know they had a very long and drawn out process but for me it was like application call into the audition then the next audition then psychiatric interview then oh you're in the final 12 and i'm like oh my god that all has just happened in the space of a week and i didn't have time to think about it 
And I think if I'd had time to think about it, then maybe I wouldn't have gone for it. I wouldn't have been brave enough. But would you know why that was? I mean, did they ask a lot about your backstory, which is fascinating and is such a sort of example of modern Britain? I, no, if I, I mean, I used to be a TV producer and as soon as you'd said Tanganyika Territory, I'd have had you. Um, <laughs> did they ask you about your backstory? Just a little bit, just in terms of, you know, did you bake when you were little? Um, and I said, no, I didn't do any baking really until I was about 12 years old. And I remember the milkman coming round and offering us this book. And it had scones and fairy cakes and, you know, all of those usual bakey things in there. And that was the first time that I opened the oven door. And for our Indian households, as you've probably heard, you know, I think Nadia Hussain said the same thing. The oven is basically an extra cupboard. We don't use it to bake anything. So that was the first time, really, that I started baking by myself. And But no, they didn't really ask about my background. They just really asked, you know, do you bake? Do you bake with your children? Because my girls were really little at the time. And of course, you know, everyone loves baking with toddlers. And we used to love doing that when they were little as well. Yeah. But Gujarati girl who's really entrepreneurial and really go-getting, great stuff, you know, because <laughs> what I love about Bake Off and, you know, those those cooking competitions is that you actually do get representation of modern Britain on those those competitions in a way that you probably don't or certainly didn't around that time on, you know, amongst the TV chefs. You get to see, you know, how people were brought up around food. You know, immigrant culture is full of stories and that's what your book is about biting biting let's let's just go into that so you know in the introduction is a big backstory of your entire family um living in Tanganyika territory also known as Tanzania or became known as as Tanzania take us through that early life of your grandparents moving from Gujarat to uh, Tanganyika territory as it was so it was just really fascinating to speak to so many of my relatives I think that one of the the challenges that we have in our culture is that the elders don't like to talk about stuff um and I appreciate that because it must have been really hard right you know upping sticks and and going to new far fung fung kind of lands so I I never really knew how my family all ended up in Tanzania um Mum was born over there and I knew that. I knew all of her siblings were born over there. But with dad's side of the family, I hadn't realised how much of my um, father's life was actually spent in Tanzania until I started talking to him about the book. Um, we went around the house and he's got literally a suitcase full of paperwork. And it was just so amazing pulling out all of those different documents and looking at the dates and the passport stamps and the... Um, you know work permits and just so much administration and sitting him down in the first instance to just say dad how did you come to be in Tanzania what happened that sparked all of that was just a really fascinating discovery and I remember snippets of it so I went back to India when I was little with him my grandfather wasn't very well and I remember sitting on my granddad's lap and he was showing me all these photos of days gone by and equally I hadn't clocked, obviously, when I was that little, that they had spent so much time in Tanzania as well. And actually, most of their working life they spent in Tanzania. So it was just such a lovely voyage of discovery to get my dad to open up and tell all of these stories. And speaking to my mum's brother in particular, he's in the book, actually. There's a picture of him with his Tusker beer. He is just such a magnificent storyteller. And we went round to his house and we just had the 
best day looking at old photographs, reliving stories of when mum was little, when dad was little, and dad used to do this, and mum used to do this. And you start to kind of recognise traits in yourself and, and you know, your, your children even. So I think that through the discovery of, of documents and photographs, I got a real sense of what it must have been like for them at that time. And if you take aside the transition and the journey to get there, which must have been ridiculous on a boat, right? Months and months spent on a boat. It seemed such a happy time. Um, and, you know, they're full of, of memories of going out and doing stuff. Well, I mean, it's escape, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there was that real sense of escape, I think. But at the same time, there was an escape from a, a pressing situation in India. Uh, you know, this is the sort of the 1930s, 1940s, wasn't yes. it? Yes. But then, you know, by the 70s, what was happening around the borders there was terrifying. People will remember Idi Amin, particularly in Uganda, just over the border of this wonderful life that your grandparents had built for your family in Tanzania. And once again, it's this story of people who are you know it's a diaspora story that so many listeners will have heard or heard their grandparents talk about and their parents probably you know leaving a place that has a real threat having had this wonderful life bringing up in a whole generation and then you're on the move again Um, they had to get out and India was the obvious place to go back to to go home so you were age two at that time but very quickly, your parents decided just a few years later to come to London. Uh, start again. Yeah. And this is a story for so many people. And again, you, you go back to rock bottom, living in a flat over a shop in Tooting Broadway. And you describe all this in your introduction. Tell us a little bit of the journey towards your first food moment, which is where you kind of land in Hanwell. I don't remember much, to be honest. And I think it's, again, through photographs that we have you know, these memories that, 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 that are jogged. And I remember that we weren't allowed out. And I remember lots of tall people, white faces, and I hadn't seen white faces before. You know, I was five, six years old. I hadn't really seen those kinds of faces. I'd never heard the English language spoken so much around me. So it was really alien, really, really alien. And it was really hard not to go to sleep every night, completely terrified. Um, and I remember, you know, my mom, my cousins um, would read us stories and, you know, take us on a bit of an escape. And actually one of my cousins, my first cousin, Linubai, who's in the book, um, and he he used to give me books and, and he'd encourage me to read. And I think that it was just even looking at the pictures and learning how to just disconnect from all of this uncertainty that was around me to... Um, try and acclimatise. I mean, you know, people have different coping mechanisms and and thinking back, I think that's probably what mine was, was how do I kind of start to integrate into this world? How do I start to speak this language? Obviously, we had to go to school. And I remember my first day at school and I was really proud because I had my uniform on. I was, you know, I'd never had clothes like that before, such posh clothes. But because I didn't speak English and I didn't eat this and I didn't have that, I had so many badges on my blazer. So like yellow washed in doesn't eat beef, 
pink, which doesn't eat pork, blues, which doesn't speak English, you know, all of those different kinds of badges to differentiate me. And it was really scary. It was really, it was like a blur walking around with, you know, headphones on, not really understanding what was going on and just, you know, shoveling along. And then you'd come home and mum would have made something that was familiar. And I think, again, this is the same with so many immigrants um like myself where you come back to what brings you comfort you come back to what brings you that understanding of everything's going to be okay and that not everything has changed these things are all the same so just coming back and having dar bath shag rotli every day is that kind of consistent meal brought that stability that we were all needing in this world that was so new yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're, you have a massive family, um, m- many of whom were around you. You're, one of your favourite aunties um, is your first food moment, your cumin spiced cheese on toast. And she lived in the same estate in Hanwell. Tell us yeah. about what happened to you during the summer holidays. Yeah, so Hanwell was um, the most god-awful council estate but it, for us it was paradise you know we'd come from living on as you say this this one room um on top of the flat in Tuting, and then we moved to a single room in Southall and then we moved to another bigger room in Southall so by the time we got to Hanwell this was kind of like our first proper home as a family and it was um just beautiful I got my own room I had a desk I had a bed um I didn't have to share with my sisters And summer holidays were really hard because both my parents worked. My mum worked in the Gillette factory at Brentford. So she'd leave the house at about five o'clock in the morning and she would have prepared all, you know, snacks and for us to to eat during the day. Dad would leave at six o'clock in the morning and neither of them would be home until much later. So summer holidays were a bit of a blur of just, you know, playing outside. But one of my favourite aunties, she's passed away now, but Sushilanti, she used to take us on an adventure and we saw it as a huge adventure because it was on buses and we were allowed to sit at the top of the bus and mum mum and dad never let us do that. So she'd take us to go and visit her mum in Edmonton. So to go from Hanwell to Edmonton, that was such an, you know, a journey. And... um if we were lucky, we were allowed to kind of stay over a few days. So we'd arrive um, on this estate and, you know, the council estate was just another council estate. It was very similar to ours, but it was a tower block. And she lived way up on like the eighth or the tenth floor. I don't remember now. And we used to get up there and you could just see for miles and miles and miles and miles and all these beautiful buildings. And we'd have different food because... Edmonton at that time, and and actually it still is, I live very close to Edmonton now, was just this amazing community of different cultures and African Caribbean faces, which felt so much more familiar to me coming from Tanzania. So I used to love um, going shopping with her and she'd tie my scarf to her sari so that I wouldn't get lost. And we'd go and we'd buy bread and vegetables and, and cheese. And I'd never really had cheese before. So we'd come back and she said, okay, I'm going to make you know this little snack and you might not have had it before but I want you to try it we're always encouraged to try things so she made cheese on toast but it wasn't as you know you and I would probably make cheese on toast now um we didn't really use the um oven to to do anything as I said so she would butter the bread and then she'd put it down on 
uh, buttered side up onto the frying pan and it would just crisp up. So then you'd have this soft bit underneath and then she'd take the soft bit off and I would have to grate the cheese on top of that. And then she would put that underneath the grill, which in those days was on top of the hob, right, with the flame. So it was almost like um, setting fire to the, the cheese, basically. And then she'd drizzle it with um, a little bit of chutney and some cumin. Oh my God, it was just like the best thing that we'd ever tasted. And we'd have it like just slurping um, with with milk or tea, sweet tea, looking out over the twinkly lights, you know, on this council estate in Edmonton. And it was just the most heavenly thing. And, and I, I think that I remember it most not necessarily even for how it tasted, but just the process. It was just such a new way of cooking food. Like, what is this thing that I'm grating? And it tastes really weird. And then when you melt it, it tastes completely different. So that's that's probably why I had that down as one of my favourite memories. Yeah, and you were already becoming a little cook. I mean, absorbing those memories along with the food and noticing how things were being made kind of stood you in quite good stead because only three years later at the age of eight your mum had to go back and took your sisters and you were left to look after your dad who was working full-time and that meant you had to cook for him that's your second food moment yeah so mum mum had to fly back her, her dad wasn't well so she went back to Tanzania and my sisters were obviously you know quite little still so they went with her and you know before she went I would always help her in the kitchen chopping stuff peeling stuff and she would, um, you know, teach me little bits and pieces, but she'd never really taught me a proper meal before and how to put it all together. So, Badadanushak, i.e., you know, potato curries, shak is the way that we refer to curry. Um, and I would um, chop the potatoes really, really small because she told me that that would make it much faster to cook. Um, if I made them too big, then I'd get, you know, a telling off. And, um, the hardest thing really was to try and kind of manage all of the different steps because you've kind of chopped the potatoes, then you've got to heat the oil and then you've got to kind of put the mustard seeds and the cumin seeds in, but you've got to wait until they're just at the right temperature. And I think it took about a week of me making this like every single day until she was happy that I would be able to do it properly for my dad. Um, and I think for me, what's interesting is that's the first dish that I taught my children as well. And, you know, they were really little and I used to have them up on stools and we would chop the potatoes together. But what I did with them, which mum didn't do with me, was I used to get them to put all of the spices in a little bowl. So everything was really ready for them to kind of write potatoes in, spices in, give it a quick stir, put the lid on. Um, and they used to call it crazy cooker because when the oil um, starts to heat up and the seeds start to fizzle and pop, you know, it can be a little bit scary. So... That is the first um, shark or curry that I learned how to cook. And, you know, it it's such a brilliant dish and it's an important one in the book because for me, if you can master how to make butter shark, you can literally cook any, any you know, Gujarati dish. Um, it really is the basics. And I think what was really funny when we were on my, on our own, my dad and I, during that time, was that I think he tolerated just potatoes for about three days with 
rotlies, all different shapes and sizes and thicknesses. Rice, sometimes a little bit too raw and sometimes a little bit overdone. And then he'd come home and he'd say, oh, I bought some peas today. Maybe you could put those in the shack tomorrow. And then the following day he'd bring aubergines and then we'd put aubergines in there and then we'd put peas and aubergines in there. So we kind of figured it out between us. You know, my dad is a classic Indian male. This is what he eats every single day. Shark, rotli, rice, dal. And I think over the course of those four or five weeks, we figured out a rhythm. He started to help me roll things out, chop things up. And I think that, you know, it, it ended up being pretty... Um, a pretty intense cookery course of the basics of Gujarati food. And by the time my mum came home, obviously I was a dab hand at it all. So I took over a lot of the responsibility in the kitchen just day to day anyway. What a brilliant way to learn to cook. I mean, it's not just literally layering up the lessons and adding different vegetables as they become available, but also adding on that sense of responsibility, of caring, of feeding, nourishing... As a small child, that must have absolutely been mind-blowing. Building those Gujarati values into the ritual of cooking was essential for your family, wasn't it? Tell us about your third food moment and how that built from that experience of cooking from your dad. Yeah, so from a very young age, I think that we are, um, you know, taught to respect our elders and it's I think reflecting back on it now, I get quite frustrated because as a girl, particularly, you're not encouraged to deviate from the mould and do things differently, right? And I think there's probably lots of listeners that would resonate with that of my age. Um, and I wasn't brave enough to put my hand up and say, no, that I don't want to do that. I, I, I never challenged my parents ever. Um, I just, you know, did what I was told. And even all the way up till A-levels, I think I cooked um, pretty much every single day, regardless of how much schoolwork that I had. So number one, respect your elders. Number two, eat whatever is on your plate. You know, we've come into a new country. We didn't have much money. Um, there was absolutely no question of not finishing what was on your plate. That was considered absolutely abhorrent. Um, if we went round to other people's houses, then we had to eat everything on our plate, regardless of whether or not we liked it. Um, and if we didn't, we got, you know, an absolutely stern telling off in front of everybody. So if you did it, you did it once and you never did it again because you didn't want to be shamed like that in front of the family. So I had a very strict upbringing. Um, and I think that those values are instilled in you right from the get go. Um, prayer, religion is a big part of that as well. You know, going to the temple, praying, obviously here, when we came here, we didn't have a temple to go to. So every Gujarati household has a little temple that's set up somewhere in the home. And, you know, we are taught to offer food and blessings. So a lot of that um, is instilled down through the, the, the years. And one of the memories that I have um, of my father's eldest brother the, the third food moment there that I've shared which is Faluda I suppose is linked very much to that on reflection I mean I didn't think about it at the time I just thought that I was going on a walk with my dad's eldest brother and he was going to take me to the temple and then after the temple we would go and get a treat and the treat would either be Faluda which is this glorious rose milkshake with little 
semolina bits and basil seeds in it and a big dollop of ice cream and rose syrup um so i would either be treated to that or i would be treated to tutti frutti ice cream but looking back on it now i remember that there was a huge component of being well behaved going round the temple and saying hello to the priest and seeking their blessings going round to each of the deities and seeking their blessings and learning how to pray in the right way um if i did all of that well then my father's brother would let me ring the bell uh at the temple which was huge for me because i was so little i couldn't reach and it was always really exciting to kind of be lifted up and ring that um and then we would go and get tutti frutti ice cream or or falada so I kind of look back on that now and I think well there's so much of that all the way through my childhood um you know every time that we had treats whether it was falada whether it was sev or whether it was the the siro that's in the book or whether it was shrikhand there was always an element of behavior attached to it you know we don't get things like treats unless we are good um and I don't know if that's right to be honest Jilly I think I haven't raised my children in that way for me it's kind of very much more balanced now but because things were expensive because things were hard to come by that was very much how I was raised is you know this is our darbat shakrotli that we're having every day and today actually you know what because you've done really well in your exams or you've done really well at school or you were really good when we went to so and so's house you can have a treat you married an englishman coming from such a strict family and such a huge family where's the balance lie more gujarati with your kids or are you more english i would say that we are neither i would say that we are quite international with the way that we live our life and 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 what we eat at home um with my husband um yes he's uh, he's the complete opposite from, of of me six foot two he's um you know born over here well actually he was born in scotland um raised in england all his life middle england as well not 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 a londoner he was um from chipping sodbury um over near bristol so they had like one takeaway i think indian takeaway yeah i mean it wasn't easy um uh marrying an englishman um we've been married 25 years this year and i'm really proud of my family for just welcoming him the way that they have you know at the time back then i remember he actually came back for his best man's wedding and he went to see my father and asked my father for my hand in marriage and i had absolutely no idea that he had done that and my husband wanted to take me out uh, for my birthday and he said i've booked a hotel and we can stay overnight and i'm like tone i can't stay overnight with you i live with my parents my parents are really strict there's absolutely no way that that's happening he said no 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 i've cleared it with your dad i'm like what you've cleared it with my dad you've you've met my dad when did you meet my dad well i i i met your dad because you know i wanted to ask him if it was okay for me to propose and i'm like what when did this actually happen i was absolutely mind blown that he had met my parents and that my dad had actually said yes but i think coming back to values jilly i think it's 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 those values right he had done the right thing by my dad he had sought my dad's permission he had gone to meet my dad he had explained to my dad how he would take care of me and that you know given my dad an insight as to the kind of person that he was 
So that was great <laughs> that we didn't have to have that hurdle. And then the second hurdle really was family because trying to tell folks back in Tanzania that, that you know, your daughter's going to marry this Englishman was pretty tough. And I remember the phone ringing off the hook, Julie, when we told people and word started to get around the community that this marriage was happening. And I remember my parents being on the phone trying to pacify elders that everything was going to be okay. And I'm the eldest, right? So I set the tone. And I know that mum was very fearful that, oh, if we let you marry an Englishman, then nobody's going to want to marry your sisters because, you know, you've gone haywall. There was very much that kind of mentality. But I think, you know, I'm really proud of my family for kind of rising above all of that. Your fourth food moment is about the food that you had at your wedding. Tell us about the Shrikand. Yes, so Shrikand is the best dessert in the world. It was a really big deal at my wedding. We had this enormous bowl and I think I probably ate half of it. I insisted on an Indian wedding, absolutely wanted to have that. I deviated from all of the food that we have at Indian weddings. I wanted to have what my husband and I enjoyed eating. Oh, there's just so many desserts, but Shrikand really is my favourite, Jilly. It is um, based... Um, it's made with yogurt and traditionally what you do is you get this thick wad of, of newspaper and you put the yogurt on there and the paper sucks up all of the water so you're left with this just pure thick curd and then you sweeten that with um, caster sugar and cardamom and then you add some saffron and some nuts over the top and I am obsessed with shrikand I mean like I had so much of it when I was pregnant with both of my children um, I craved it when I, I have lived abroad and it's the first thing that my mum always brings me when she comes to, to, to visit Biting biting is actually a family term isn't it? It, for snacking. Tell us why you wanted to do the book, which is essentially the story as we've told it, but focusing on the snacks of your family. Yeah, so um, in Gujarati, we say katak batak. So katak means small, batak means bite. So um, that's kind of small bites. But in my family, we don't say katak batak, we say biting or biting, biting. So, you know, if, if mum comes round um, and she'll start opening all of the cupboards at home, she's like, come on, let's make some biting, biting. Um, so it's really a family thing. Some some people in our family will say biting just on its own, sometimes with the eye kind of drawn out. So let's do some biting, let's do biting with some beer, you know. So so it really is a family thing. And I did a lot of research on this, Julie, because I thought, is it just my family or is it actually all Gujaratis that say biting, biting, or is it just mine? Um, and I think it is 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 mostly our community. So yeah, it I, I suppose the ethos behind... Um, the book came from an argument um, or let's say disagreement between my mother and my husband, right? So when um, I was uh, pregnant, after I had the the, the girls, mum would come over and stay to, you know, help out with the with them from time to time. And I remember being in the kitchen one time and they were having this debate about small little bowls of food everywhere. Um, we have a very small fridge, Jilly. It's a kind of under-counter fridge, so it's not very, um, doesn't you know, hold a lot of food. And my husband must have opened it up this day and all he saw in there was just these little, little bowls of food. And he was saying to my mum, why have we got all of these little bits and pieces everywhere? You know, why do you save even this, this two or three spoonfuls of, of food? And my mum was trying to, you know, trying to explain to him that you don't waste anything. She was absolutely gobsmacked of 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 the thought of throwing just even two or three tablespoons of shak away. And she was trying to explain to him, well, look, you know, 
I can turn that into this tomorrow and I can turn that into this the following day. And she was trying to kind of get across this ethos. And I thought, oh my God, this is just so comical. And I think that if my husband had been taller, she probably would have smacked him around the head, right? But my mum is four foot nothing and my husband is six foot two. And so just this like looking, it was like watching a tennis match, Jilly, going up, down, up, down, watching this interchange. And I thought, it would just be so good to write this down because I do think that that ethos of not wasting what you have, which I've grown up with all my life, not just because we didn't have any money when I was little, but just generally our culture just doesn't waste anything, let alone food. I thought it would just be really good to write it down. And the more people I spoke to, um, the more encouraged I felt that something like this was was needed. Um, so in the book, I've kind of given base recipes like the butter dunishak, the potato curry that we talked about, but then just given hopefully people loads of ideas of what they can do if they've got stuff left over. So yeah, sure, you can have the same meal tomorrow. You can have butter dunishak with rice and rotli, but how much more fun is it to experiment and get creative, right? And that's where I think the internationalness of the way we eat comes in now. So if I make butter dunshak today, then tomorrow's breakfast is hands down going to be a thick slice of buttered sourdough with butter dunshak on top, bunga poached egg on it, chilli and coriander chutney over the top, sprinkle of, of toasted sunflower seeds, boom. And that is a metaphor for your entire journey, isn't it? The little girl who came here aged five, through, who dreamt of having a TV show, got that. You're now a hugely successful businesswoman, having run your own cafe post Bake Off. Um, I mean, you've been all over the world. What do your parents think about this book that tells that entire story? Oh, do you know what? I've been too afraid to ask, Jilly. I really, honestly, I, I'm going to go and see my mum this week to show her the book. But I've just been too scared to ask. But I think... For me, it comes back down to that immigration point, right, and and seeking a better life, whether it was my grandparents that left India to do that in Tanzania, whether it was my parents and, and so many others that left East Africa to do that over here. I am just so blessed. Oh, I'll get really emotional, Jilly, when I talk about this. I'm just so blessed to have the life that I have and to have had the opportunities um, I just try and make the most of, of everything. Um, I mean, when you when you come over somewhere like England with nothing, you just seize the day and you just seize every single opportunity that is thrown your way. Um, I guess I just hope that they'll be really proud of that. Thanks for listening. You can read the transcripts at jillysmith.com where you can also sign up to my newsletter. And you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Smith, where you can keep up with my adventures in cookery with Leith's online. Check the show notes and on Instagram for full details of how to get cooking the books discounts on Leith's cookery courses. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>